morning. I will be reading out of Romans 12, 15 through 16 this morning. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. All right. Good morning, Taproot. Hi. My name is Darren. I'm one of the elders here. And we're going to be tackling a couple big cultural issues this morning. Um, Many of you will know, some of you may not, that throughout the U.S., on this Sunday, many churches are celebrating what's called Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a Sunday marking an event 46 years ago where the Supreme Court passed a ruling that prohibited states from enacting their own laws surrounding abortion, surrounding when we were able to terminate children in the womb. This was in 1973 when this ruling took place. This is called Roe versus Wade. And in 1984 this week, President Reagan said this Sunday will be the Sunday to commemorate that event or to, to, to remember that event happening and to focus on a collective lamenting and mourning for the loss of thousands and thousands of unborn children. Something that is encouraging as you look into this issue of abortion to know is that every year the number of aborted humans decreases, which is amazing. It's something we praise God for. And something that I looked into recently is that there was a study put out a few weeks ago, and as far as I know, it's the first study of its kind that seems to indicate that the amount of people that opposed the ruling back in 73 of Roe v. Wade has finally tipped to a 51%. So it's not, even though we live in an area like Seattle where it seems a given that you're pro-choice, this is not a given in our culture as a whole. Many people are very conflicted about abortion. It's not nearly as black and white as though people are wearing white hats and black hats. Even those that support a woman's right to choose abortion don't always want abortion to be as legal as it is. Something that's very interesting as well as I was studying this issue years ago is that if you look on a graph at the number of abortions every year, you will see that number decrease from the late 80s until now. And something I looked into is I wondered those big dips, those big decreases over the years, what caused that? And I started recognizing that those dips in the number of children aborted coincided with technological advances in, can you guess? Ultrasounds, right? There's this idea of out of sight, out of mind. Something that we can't see can't really affect us. And it's the reason that we partner with an organization called CareNet, that every month has their mobile um, abortion, or ultrasound screening um, clinic that parks right outside our building and has women that come by that are either needing pregnancy tests or needing um, different help, um, financial or sometimes adoption resources. 
And we partner with that organization because we believe that when it's not out of sight, it's not out of mind. So right now, presently, and I'm going to hone in on what we're actually talking about in a little bit, but just to give the big picture on this issue surrounding abortion, right now we have 885,000 people a year who do not see the light of day. And to take that huge number, because numbers can just be numbers, right? We're in tax season and just big numbers are everywhere. But to take this number of 885,000 and kind of bring it down to earth, like down to home, the whole city of Seattle plus the whole city of Burien combined, 885,000 a year. Something pretty crazy about the ruling of Roe versus Wade in 73 is that Jane Roe, who was the pro-choice person pushing um, for the, the federal legalization of abortion, that her, Jane Roe was a Jane Doe. It should kind of sound obvious, they obviously rhyme, but her real name was Norma Nelson. And 20 years after that, in the mid-90s, at a hotel on a work trip, meeting a pastor there, she had a dramatic conversion met Jesus, became a believer. At that time, she was in a lesbian relationship. She was working at an abortion clinic. She was doing everything she could to keep kind of continuing the legacy that she had spearheaded in that ruling, and yet God dramatically turned her life around to a point that she now volunteers full-time with Operation Rescue that is actively fighting for the lives of unborn children because unborn lives matter to God because they're made in his image. As most of you know, tomorrow is also a very special day. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is tomorrow, and that is celebrated, commemorated around his birthday every year. Martin Luther King Jr. was a man, a Christian man, who gave voice to many voices that were voiceless. He was someone who fought for justice from a biblical framework for those that were on the receiving end of injustice. He was a leader of the civil rights movement with a heart towards nonviolent protest and seeing systems of oppression change because brown and black lives also bear the Imago Dei, the image of God, and matter. Raise your hand right now. I'm going to do a lot of raise your hand this morning, I think. Um, Raise your hand if you were born after the year 2000. Wow, a lot of young people in this room. After the year 2000? Oh, sorry. I know why you're not raising your hand. I meant to say before the year 2000. <laughs> like, man, this is the most unresponsive. <laughs> I thought I knew how this was going to go. All right. <laughs> there we go. In the year 2000, Ronald Reagan, who also was the first person to set this um, marked day of Sanctity of Life Sunday, he was also the president that set, up, or, uh, that set up the Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, and in the year 2000 was the first year that all 50 states officially recognized the celebration of MLK Day. Many were holding out saying, what's the big deal? He was a little over the top. Is it really that important? Some had other names for the day that would marginalize his work. And so many of us also see areas of racial injustice in the same light, out of sight, out of mind, not my problem, and what's the big deal? To kind of answer that question, I, I looked without 
intending to try to find examples for this sermon, I just noticed throughout the week, just through social media and the news, three different news stories that stuck out. Within these last 10 days, a very different king, a man named Steve King, who is a known anti-immigration voice and a state representative in Ohio, was quoted as saying, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? State representative. Another state representative, just Thursday, Tony Cardenas, was approaching the podium at the House of Representatives floor, while one other representative shouted out, go back to Puerto Rico. This was Thursday. He was quoted afterwards saying, we've been called names and been told to go back to Mexico, go back to wherever, so many times, it's just unfortunate that it would happen on the floor of the House of Representatives. Someone should also tell that person that Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. <laughs> In Ohio, also this week, news came out at a General Motors plant that many black employees were filing grievances because they were showing up to work five times throughout the year 2018 with nooses hanging in the areas they worked. One showing up for the first time and being told, buried, back in my day, you doing that, you would have been buried with a shovel. Threats to the point where union representatives came in, and rather than dealing with prejudice and racial injustice, this is what the union rep said. You're making too big a deal of this. There was never a black person lynched who didn't deserve it. This is 2018. Needless to say, this is very charged. For us, it can be very disoriented, and it can seem like these are two issues that are very removed from each other, but the common denominator is that there's a lot of pain surrounding both these hugely hot topic issues. And there's also pain on both sides, not just those that are suffering or on the receiving end of injustice, but the people that are saying these things, these quotes, the people that are callous on, about life in any form, at any age, in any stage, they're also responding out of pain, out of deep pain. There's pain on both sides. There's often unprocessed pain that enables someone who's hurt to then in turn hurt. The idea of hurt people hurt people is a completely sensical idea. The cross can change that. But without Jesus, we perpetuate what's been done to us. So we're going to look this morning close up at pain. We're going to take it from this big picture overview that I started out with and zoom in on what does this look like for us relationally, person to person. How do we deal with pain? Rather than saying, this big issue out here, what can I do? How can I fix it? I want our question to be, how do I interact with my kid when they come in with a scraped knee or they've been bullied? What do I do when I'm talking to my spouse and they're expressing extreme pain from something I've done or something that's been done to them? How do I react? How would I react if Jane Roe, if Norma Nelson was across the sofa from me and she was coming to this place of conversion feeling the weight, the shame of what she'd been complicit in, of what she'd been responsible for? How would you respond to that pain? Would we squirm? Would we scramble for an exit? Would we try to find the answer, the fix, the verse with the bow on top? If we were on the other side of the Birmingham jail cell, MLK, 
and he was expressing what it felt like to be in the system of injustice, literally in a jail cell, for trying to break that kind of system. How would we respond to that kind of pain? That's a hard question, but I think the only way to get to the answer to that is to first look at God. How does God respond to pain? Throughout the book of Exodus that we've been in, we see that God mourns, that he remembered his people, and he heard their cry and had compassion. But I want to look at Jesus and see him as the ultimate pinnacle of how does God respond to pain in the flesh as an example for us and as the ultimate reality of our response to pain on the cross. So let's pray, and we're going to get into that. Father, I thank you that you have not just left us with um, deal with it. In our pain and our hurt, when we experience shame, you've not just from afar, from on high, said, get over it. I dealt with worse. God, we thank you that you are, like your word says, a priest, this kind of in-between mediator that will sympathize with our weakness because you've been tempted the same ways we have, but you didn't cave. You didn't give in. So God, this is a heavy, heavy topic, and, and it should be because, Lord, you came into heaviness. You brought order out of chaos. You spoke light <coughs> into darkness. You bought, brought comfort out of pain. So God, do that to us. Give us that this morning. Those that are in pain, in deep pain this morning, those who the topic of abortion hits way too close to home since a fourth to a third of the women in this room have or will aborted. Lord, many men in this room have been complicit or encouraged women towards abortion. God, many women suffer shame and suffer pain from the remorse, the post-abortive depression. God, many in this room feel pained, even just talking about race as though their ethnicity is being diminished. Lord, and there's pain in that. You know how to deal with our pain, so we ask you, through your spirit, to tend to us and to allow us to be other people who tend to others. Amen. So looking at Jesus, if you guys want to look at the first point, Jesus bore the pain of the hurting. And I'm just going to go through this pretty quickly, but I want us to just listen closely so we get an idea, a sense of how Jesus related to those in pain. He was highly relational. Most people, whether they're in the church or not, see Jesus as someone who was kind, who drew near to the hurting, to the lonely, to the oppressed, because he did. You see the story of him coming to the woman at the well. And rather than being self-righteously distanced from a woman in her hurt, in her pain, and in her sin, he draws near. We see the same thing when he comes near to those that were grieving around their friend Lazarus. In the shortest verse in our English Bibles, Jesus wept. He bore with. He absorbed the pain of others. We see that as Mary is crying at the feet of Jesus, dirty feet that she is wiping clean with her tears. And we don't see him squirm, flinch, move his feet away, but we see him draw near. We see that he always draws near to pain, even when it's this relational pain of disciples that he's poured his whole life into, that he's dealt with disciples like Peter and his 
arrogant, just back and forthness. And yet when Peter goes back and forth with Jesus and denies him while he's sitting there at the campfire being asked, do you know that Jesus? And he says, no. There's this little verse that says, and Jesus looked at him from afar. Jesus was there and felt that pain and yet didn't remove himself from Peter. But we see after his death and resurrection, he comes off the boat and Peter again at a charcoal fire warming himself is approached by Jesus. Jesus draws near. And Jesus says in Matthew 4, 23, uh, sorry, Matthew says that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over Syria and the people brought to him all who were ill with various illnesses, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't see people's burdens on him as something that would continue to burden him, but he gave those burdens to the Father and still welcomed the burdens of others, coming for those that knew they were sick, not those that thought they were well. And the way Jesus gave his burdens to the Father is it says he would retreat often to lonely places and, and be recharged by the Father. Jesus was strengthened by the Father. He was a human. He didn't just lean into this supernatural strength to be able to handle everything and the omniscient knowledge of everyone's pain. But he, as a human, both fully human and fully God, absorbed the pain of others and yet gave it to the Father in prayer. He was recharged while we often find rest elsewhere after draining conversations, Jesus went to the Father in that perfect rhythm. Jesus bore our shame and our sin, our pain, ultimately on the cross, which is the most supernatural and mysterious thing, that Jesus could actually bear every single pain in this room and in this world and in all of time in a single moment on the cross because he was God. He took on the pain and the sin and the shame of the whole world so that when we don't have that emotional or relational stamina to sit through another talk with that person, to absorb more of the hurt of what they're experiencing, when we go to the Father and we're recharged by him, it's because of the cross and the spirit in us that we're able to take on the pain of others. And a lot of us don't feel equipped for that, and this is, this is the reason we're starting with Jesus, is because we're not equipped for it in ourselves. We were, we were made to relate to one another to the point that we kind of rubbed off on each other. We would feel each other's pain. As our scripture this morning said, mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, to draw near to the lowly. That's how we were created to be, but because of our sin, because of those insecurities, those fears, that escape mechanism that comes out, we withdraw. We avoid pain like the plague at all costs. The idea to really ask someone, how are you doing, and mean it, it's a scary thing for a lot of us. So we're going to be talking about what does absorbing pain feel like in a justice on the ground way, a way of picturing who Jesus is through absorbing the pain of others. So at this time, I'm going to invite up um, Sarah Brill, who I am married to, 
and my good friend Javon Washington, and we're going to hear from them what absorbing pain feels like in a little bit of a panel talk. So give them a hand as they walk up. guys doing? Good. <laughs> Start with my wife. You have been someone that has had many experiences with women in places of emotional turmoil, life hardship, unexpected pregnancies, <laughs> unplanned. Some of you haven't called you on the way to getting abortions. You've talked to him in that place of deep pain and conflict. What was it like for you in those conversations? Okay. <laughs> um, um, I've been near the pain and panic of unplanned pregnancies for a handful of women. And they involve different circumstances. Uh, one was the result of a terrible rape while she was out running and we had just met her a few weeks prior. Mm -hmm. Another one was um, she, her marriage was really unstable and it involves mental illness and suicide attempts and an affair. And um, she called me after she had made the appointment for the abortion. And um, another one was a teen pregnancy um, after a whole childhood of abuse and neglect and she was just making choices that was a response to her needing love and being mm -hmm. a valuable person, feeling like a valuable person. And um, so the first one, what we did mostly, we kind of, I feel like we were new at it. Felt around the dark. Yes. Yeah. And um, <laughs> she stayed on our couch for several days, and all we did was read scripture to her just whole books, um, and I just really wanted her to feel not alone in it, and um, I, I mean, we just didn't really know what else to do, and I think it's because what had happened to her um, was just so awful. There were no words, so I think just being present with her while she grieved was all we could figure out how to do, mm -hmm. and then... Um, for our, my friend who had the unstable marriage, she called me and we had a handful of conversations on the phone as she, in between making the appointment and it coming up. And um, I really wanted her to feel heard and understood and that it was completely understandable that she would try to reach for anything that could give her some control mm -hmm. in um, and she was pro-life, but she didn't feel like in the situation that she could handle it. Um, so she had lots of shame attached to her life. And mm -hmm. so I concentrated on her heart and um, how I did not want her heart breaking even more if she went through with it. I think she understood that I cared about her and her soul and not right. just for the second half of another life growing. And um, she did end up 
uh, canceling the appointment. And then um, our, my, my other experience was with uh, a young girl that um, I had already been in a relationship with for a couple of years while she was out on her own. She um, just had a really invalidating childhood and a lot of abuse and neglect, and she was kicked out when she was 16. And so when I learned that she was um, expecting, um, it didn't shock me like I expected her to just kind of mess up her life, but I, it didn't shock me in the way that you have not been given a foundation at all to make good choices, so um, there's no judgment at all. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here for you, and we've, she's, I've known her for like seven or eight years now, and mm -hmm. there's been lots of victories and a lot of crash and burns. But um, I think I mostly, when I approach her, I'm, I'm mostly filling in those gaps that I, I tell her how proud of her I am, and I remind her of her strengths, and um, that God sees her and um, loves her, and mm -hmm. a reminder that she is a person worthy of love and um, yeah, I don't know what else. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that there's something that draws um, different women in these kind of situations to you? How, how would you say you've made yourself available? Um, I think, well, I know with, um, with all those situations, I'm just... I'm humbled because I know that if I was in that position or if I had had that childhood, that I, I probably wouldn't, mm -hmm. I would be doing, I'd be having the same struggles mm -hmm. with my own identity and where I fit in the world. So um, there's absolutely like no self-righteousness allowed. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, empathy comes from really understanding how you would be in that situation. Mm -hmm. And um not just the situation, but how the how the process would go afterward. Um, so, I tr there's no room for self righteousness, and there's no room for um, running in and trying to fix it because when that happens, it's mostly because I'm uncomfortable with what's going on. And um, what I've what I've realized is that. Being a place of peace, if I, if I want to show them the peace of Christ, then I have to be a place of peace oh. for them. Otherwise, I'm just showing them more, more reactionary, panicky kind of stuff. So, um, and that my, what God is asking me to do is be a place of peace for them to process the pain. And it's not so much for the actual painful event, it's for their processing of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that requires oftentimes just a lot of silence and a lot of mourning mm -hmm. and a lot of agreeing with them that yes, completely sucks. <laughs> and I am so sorry. And um, yes, validating them and validating their pain and validating the space they need to process what has been happening to them and, um, and that I accept however they're processing it. <laughs> yeah. um, and that, um, let's see, I think if they're given a little bit more room to breathe because they, they understand someone's right next to them willing to kind of um, hold it with them, then, then maybe they don't feel like it's completely on them to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. That's good.
That's great. Pass it to Javon. Javon, how are you? I'm doing good. Why are you wearing a, a clerical collar, my friend? <laughs> Everyone's wondering. <laughs> well, hello, beloved. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a, a priest, per se, um, but if you're in Christ, we're all priests. Um, and, you know, for me, wearing a clerical collar has been a really kind of weird thing. Um, some of you guys are like, I know, dude. Um, <laughs> like, what are you doing? So I'm not required to wear this collar. Uh, I'm not required to do that. Um, but one thing that, as you know, even um, my sister just was saying about, you know, herself just being near and present, you know, um, wearing a clerical collar, um, just like if a police officer is wearing a, a uniform or a paramedic is wearing a uniform, if there's a fire, you would go to a paramedic, mm-hmm. uh, you, I mean, to a firefighter. Or you, if you yeah. needed help, you would go to a paramedic. And so for me, it's a way to distinguish myself in my community to my neighbors, uh, which I look at my community like my parish, that I walk down the street, that I know them, they know me, and they can come to me. Um, and they can confess, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ask for advice, ask for prayer. And so for me, it's, it's a way to actually, like, be in the community and be known in the community mm-hmm. as a pastor. Um, mm-hmm. Though I'm not part of any denomination, um, you know, it's just an opportunity uh, for them to really know the reality that um, God's here. Mm-hmm. You know, when the police show up, you know the police is here. Mm-hmm. Lights you know, camera and action. 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 Uh, But when you see uh, this person in a a clerical collar, it's like, whoa, God is here. Not that that person is God, but his presence is here. His people is here. His grace Mm -hmm. is here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really, for me, it's all about presence. Mm -hmm. And so how can I even, um, you know, engage people? And to be honest with you, I mean, I really didn't want to wear a collar uh, because I just felt like it would be weird. Um, and then people have connotations on what what you believe or who you are if you do wear a collar or the negative things attached to that. Sure. But um, I realize that more and more, you know, if you're going to talk about empathy and bearing one another's pain, then I've kind of got to have the pain of getting over myself or being judged of what people would say about me. But really look towards I'm coming near to them, mm-hmm. modeling Christ. And there's a there's a quote from Thomas Merton that I love. And so instead of me worrying so much about what I'm wearing, how about I worry what the mission is? And so Thomas Merton has this quote and he says, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether they are uh, worthy or not worthy. And so for me, my job is to, to come near and as the Holy spirit and as Christ comes mm-hmm. near. It's mm-hmm. that incarnational presence. Yeah. And so I walk down the street. Um, I've been putting a new practice into my sermon prep and everything that I walk down the street in my clerical collar. I pray. I walk around the block praying and I go into the restaurants that yeah. I do my study at, whether it be at the bar, uh, you know, any kind of restaurant. So people know me and they know what I, they know what yeah. I, they know what I do. Yeah. I'll be honest. A couple of weeks ago when you were telling me about that, I'm like, that's weird. That sounds like, you know, <laughs> try it out see how many days you last kind of thing that's kind of what I was what I was thinking initially but this idea of uh you didn't say this but it's like this pain magnet of like you rec- people are going to come to someone they think can help mm-hmm. and it's it's something that's depending on the motive and the art behind it like it's a really awesome 
way to bring out people that are hurting in a place that feels safe. Yeah, and I think, too, when you're thinking about presence in neighborhood, you know, um, I was walking down the street. I needed to go study. There's this coffee shop that's open, and there's never any spots. And there was this one spot perfectly for me. But as I was praying, I was just like, I don't think the Lord wants me to go there. So I go to Starbucks, and I can't stand Starbucks coffee. And there's never any outlets. I need to plug up my computer, all these different things. Well, one of the gals, a parishioner that went to, that came to church at one point, she had just lost her job. Um, and I just was like, man, I'm so sorry. I prayed for her, bought her a drink, uh, and just said, can I pray for you in the restaurant? And she let me pray for her. Mm-hmm. She ends up coming to church, um, and she comes for the first time. Um, she's not a believer. Um, and then I don't hear from her about a week after she's come to church. And then I run into her at this Starbucks. And we end up opening what you just talked about, that John chapter 4 passage. Mm. And I expounded John chapter 4 um, using Starbucks as an illustration uh, of Jesus having to go through Samaria, even though he didn't, because it wasn't along his way, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just using these different Sorry, Starbucks employees, you know, I mean, <laughs> but again, it was something that she understood and that she said it was so beautiful because I was like, look, God has come near to you today. Jesus has come to your place of dwelling. You've come to this Starbucks to drink of this Starbucks, but Jesus wants to put inside of you a water uh, that Living will coffee. overflow. And that other people would be blessed. Yeah. And she was just so behooved as she confessed to me that I'm glad that you just told this to me because she started getting tears in her eyes. She said, I just spent the whole night in the hospital because I was trying to kill myself. Mm. But to know that you were here and that God comes to me, she just cried. And it's that near presence. One last question for you, Javon. Um, not only being a pastor and, and then having the clerical caller that draws people out, um, but also being a person of color and being feeling the weight and the pain of many people that come to you and you know and you resonate in a way that I can't. How do you, how do you process those times when you just emotionally just feel like you can't keep doing it? where you want to just check out, turn it off, take the collar off, so to speak. How do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, I, sometimes I just do. You gotta, I think in order to really truly heal, you gotta allow the pain to happen. I know, um, you know many doctors or you know, people who are in the medical field know that in order for a bone to grow back properly, either you have to re-break it or it has to be set right. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes we too often go to maybe the, 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 the medicine that numbs the nerves to make you not feel pain, um, which ultimately you can get addicted on rather than really dealing with this, the reality of the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes, man, it's really difficult. Sometimes I just have to go off Facebook because I just feel like it's like a place of just like everyone's, like the world's burning yeah. on social media. Yeah. But once you go outside, the sky's not on fire. Uh, <laughs> so I think that that's one piece. But I also think that, you know, it's really helped me, especially being African-American, any person who's been hurt by the church, like, oh, I don't like the church of this, and they're hypocrites and this. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm black, and the church has had a part of racism and slavery in history. But you have to be honest about that first before I can now mm-hmm. say, okay. But now, when I talk to my other brothers and sisters, like black folk, you don't get an out on why you can't submit your life to Jesus. You know, Jesus identifies with us in our pain. And so just mm-hmm. as much as I don't get an out, um, you know, you don't get no out. So I'm wearing this collar, I'm looking like a weirdo. 
um, in how I've interpreted things and how I feel. There's people that don't even want to be seen with me because of the caller. Um, you know, but it's, it's, it's that piece of, you know, hey, God has come near. There's no other pain that is deeper than the pain of God. Yeah. And to think that Jesus, when they put the crown of thorns on him, mm-hmm. that he was, they were crowning him the king over suffering and death. And he's the king over that. He reigns sovereign supreme. And so, you know, I think it's just okay to not be okay. It's okay sure. to cry. Uh, it's okay to be wounded, um, to be hurt, um, but not to let, the, uh, but not to let um, anger become um, bitterness fermented. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Don't excuse yourself. Yeah. It's understandable. Thank you, guys. You guys want to give them another hand? Thank you, guys, for sharing. All right, that was cool to hear. Just some stories of of real-life situations, people being met with, people being listened to, people being heard, having someone else share their pain and point them to Jesus. And that... It's easy for us to, to kind of look at situations around unplanned, unexpected pregnancies, women going through that, or people of color that are going through a very unique um, struggles with prejudice. And for you to take as your kind of takeaway go home is, is go, go meet a black person, go find a, a single pregnant woman, and then go kind of use them as that experiment for you to grow to absorb pain better. And that's, that's not what I'm calling us towards puts an undue pressure on, on them, and it's, it's not where, where God's calling you to begin your work. You have relationships right now that are already full of pain, and we already have our MOs for how we deal with those in some unhealthy ways. And I think what I want to close with is looking at three kind of practical takeaways on things for us to, to, to grow in and to think about while you're in those places where you're in really hard, just grimy conversations where you're feeling just the messiness and the brokenness of sin displayed in someone else's pain. First off, we're going to talk about how God calls us to listen. Secondly, we're going to talk about how God calls us to learn, and then we're going to close with how God invites us to lament. So with listening, I'm not the best teacher on this, kind of should invite someone else up here to teach on this. It's been a huge struggle for me to learn, not just to be slow to speak, but as James says, to first be quick to listen and slow to speak. They're not the same thing. Listening isn't just the absence of words, but it's an active, present, working through trying to understand and connect with what someone is saying. It's not just a question that's trying to you know, listening and asking questions that try to lead towards some answer, some, some verse, some truth, but they're inquisitive, open-ended questions that really invite listening as a response. God modeled this in the garden where omnipotent, all-knowing, uh, omniscient God knew exactly what Adam and Eve did in taking the fruit and committing that first sin. He knew exactly the shame they felt in that separation from each other because Adam had betrayed Eve and Eve had betrayed Adam. And yet God doesn't come in saying, saw you do that, this is what you did, and this is what I'm going to do about it. If you read the narrative, God comes in asking questions. Adam, where are you? He does that with us. Darren, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit? Questions that invite us to know ourselves and to see ourselves rightly 
and then be ready to see who God is. It is awkward. In our best moments, we are that, that place, like Sarah said, that place to process, that peaceful presence. Our, in our best moments, we are a good, loving ear to hear and like a shoulder to cry. And in those worst moments, we're looking for the quick fix. We're looking for an out. We're looking for an escape. And if we're not doing that literally, which some of us do, like, oh, I just got to get out. If we're not doing that in a physical way, we're often trying to do that in some spiritual ways, some religious ways. How many of you guys have been in situations where you're so uncomfortable with the pain that someone else is bringing to the table that you throw out the, well, have you talked to Pastor Darren? Why don't, why don't, I, why don't we just set up an appointment with, with Glenn, with Luis, with Will, with Jim, with Darren? Let's, let's send you to the, to the expert over here. And by the way, I've never had grief counseling like training. I've never been a trained counselor. Like, we are all called to be counselors, to speak with one another, to bear with one another, to mourn with those who mourn. We often try to pawn that off because we are fighting against our own insecurities. Sometimes we try to get through it with asking, well, can I just pray for you real quick? And rather than prayer being a place for us to help them connect with the Father and to take their pain to the Father, it, it doesn't become that kind of parenthetical point in a conversation. It becomes like this period where we're just trying to end it. Like, if I can pray for you real quick, that seems like a good place to end. Let's move on, away from the pain, rather than back into it, back into listening. So something for us is we need to ask ourselves why it is hard for us to listen. What's the inclination deep down that causes us to rush in with an answer, with a fix, with a, with a solve, and not just hear and bear with? We need to ask God in those moments to still our heart, to be like Sarah said, places of peace that exude who Jesus is through how we're responding. And then lastly, something very practical is you can ask the person that's closest to you, am I a good listener? Super simple. It might be the scariest question you ask all year. Then to ask, how can I listen better? Secondly, learn. And these connect. These go right into each other. Listen, learn, lament. Um, with learning, I, I had a, a close friend that um, our family has kind of adopted this person into our lives that um, has spent a lot of time in our living room just in these embraces as he's sobbing. And if you've ever been in that place, I mean, how awkward is it? We've all been there when a friend is just sobbing where you feel tears and snot and just that messy, like uninhibited, just dissolving, crumbling right in front of you. Having this man there like that, there was a way that I learned who he was that I couldn't have if this guy just texted me what he was feeling. Like you can learn something about, you know, from reading about it or hearing about it, but to be in proximity to pain and to be there as a, as a presence, a ministry of presence, there's a connection and knowing that can only happen through that kind of place where that person's weight becomes your own, where you're really learning this solidarity of mourning with those who mourn and bearing burdens. And it's relational. And there's, there's a word for this. There's a term for this that I only learned in the recent weeks. But it's one of those things where you're searching around for a term to describe something you felt for many years and you finally find it and you get excited about it. So I'll be talking about this for many weeks to come, I'm sure. Tacit knowledge is this idea of knowledge that is not best communicated through verbal form or written form, but is communicated best through experience. It's the difference between taking a textbook um, kind of course and apprenticing under someone who's an expert in that field. 
tacit knowledge is the kind of knowledge that you need to really learn well how to ride a bike, how to drive, how to learn a language, kind of things that have so many different elements that you really aren't going to be able to effectively write them down. You're a lot better off doing it, failing a few times, picking it up. You're not having to think about, oh, what did the book say about balance while you're learning the bike? There's things that your body just kind of learns and adapts as they go, and that is what tacit, tacit knowledge refers to, things that we pick up because we're relationally wired. God's made us to learn at a certain level, certain deep level, who one another are through close experiencing, which is what we do when we've listened well. We begin to really learn and pick up. There's a great quote by a counselor, a Christian counselor named Jim Cofield that goes this way. The sin of racism, like all others, requires a relational approach to bring about repentance. An honest relationship with God will compel us to see and know that all bear the image of God. Humble relationships with others of different ethnicities will open our eyes to how they deserve to be treated. It wasn't until the Apostle Peter, who was a racist by any standard, was in the house, quote-unquote, of a Gentile, that he came to see that God is no respecter of persons. God forced Peter to hang out with the very kind of people Peter looked down on. God used that relationship to change Peter's hearts. This may, sound, this may bring strong disagreement, but I'm going to say it anyway. Seminars, panels, crusades, marches, and sermons, you can throw in teaching, texting, verbal or written things. Focusing on the evil of racism, they're fine. But in my opinion, they accomplish far less than people being in a relationship with someone who is different than they are. We need those things at a corporate level, but the evil of racism will ultimately be addressed in a very particular and personal level. That's why, as we experience and hear people's stories in a proximity of closeness, we really begin to feel closer to them. It's the reason why when you hear people talk up here and share their stories, you feel a connection you didn't feel before, even if you had known that story through some written form. Lastly, lament. Another quote from a book I highly recommend. I'm going to have it up here later. It's a book called White Awake by Daniel Hill, an honest look at what it means to be white. Some of you may have an aversion just with that title and description, but it is, I think, the most helpful book. I finished it yesterday, and so it's, <laughs> it's a book that has been helpful for me already in the one week I've read it, and it's one of the best books I've written addressing areas of, of racism and prejudice. And here's a quote from that author on page 111 about lament. Lament doesn't function according to the rules of success. It sees suffering not as a problem to be solved, but as a condition to be mourned. Lament doesn't see the power of salvation as being in the hands of the oppressors. Instead, it cries out to God for deliverance from the grip of injustice. Lament is a guttural cry and a longing for God's intervention. It recognizes, as the psalmist so eloquently stated, that hope is found not in horses and in chariots, but in God alone. This contrast points to one of the many reasons lament can be a gift to the white church in particular. If we can just receive it, lament gives us the freedom to no longer view success as the only viable outcome. Lament gives us permission to admit that we aren't capable of fixing and may even have been a part of causing the problems we've suddenly become awakened to. Lament gives us the resource to sit in the tension of suffering and pain without going to a place of shame or self-hate. Lament allows us to acknowledge the limitations of human strength and look solely to the power of God instead. 
as I read through this book and this author talked about the disorienting feeling of just the emotional weight of conversation after conversation around areas of racial injustice. I was up at 1 a.m. just kind of transfixed in this book reading on Monday night. I just realized how exhausted I'd been for quite a few months around this whole topic, just injustice in general. Just all this, the devaluing of human life, dehumanizing the dignity of the Imago Dei all around us. It seems to be every day. And that weight of conversation after conversations where some are, you're too much about this, you social justice warrior. And then the other side is like, why aren't you doing anything, you white person, as this derogatory term. And I feel like I'm going to hit on both sides. And this extreme weight has left me in the last few months of feeling like I'm just going to take a little bit of a break. I'm going to check out a little bit. And as I was reading that, I was convicted of how the only way I've come to that place in the last few months of just feeling exhausted and wanting to withdraw from that kind of pain is because I've begun to live and lean on my own strength rather than go to God and be recharged and strengthened by Him. From that point, I was moved to lament when I realized all of a sudden that Something that I can do, this checking out and stepping away from that conversation, is something Javon can't do, something many people of color can't do, is something that a woman in the place and in the circumstances where she seems to have no options but abortion, she can't just step out of those circumstances. But I can. And the lament of what it feels like to be that stuck under pain and under injustice and that weight, it broke my heart to the point that I was just sobbing as Sarah was sound asleep, feeling God's heart for those that, that are stuck in that, that don't have release for that pain, that can't, like a uniform, just take it off at the end of the day and go back to a different kind of life. So as we learn to listen, we learn to really learn through proximity and relationship and then learn to lament, God will bring up those areas that we tend to fix. And if you guys want a really helpful resource in learning how we can kind of push against our own kind of value system that moves away from pain and actually lean into lamenting and kind of learn that lamenting language, I encourage you guys to go back in, on our website two years and listen to our sermon series on speaking the sadness, which is all about lamenting. I think it's something that the cultural tide in the U.S. has pushed against. We prize triumph, and it'll be all okay. You know, but, hey, but guess what else is good when someone's speaking pain? We always want to kind of counter it with something of, of positivity, and yet we need to, as a culture, learn how to lament, learn how to be comfortable in the discomfort because God is with us. It's also a generational tide that's pushing against us. There's a lot of stoicism that's been passed on from generation to generation, this idea that pain is to be avoided, that emotion is weakness, and stoicism, and being above that, and being logical and rational and analytical is the goal, and emotion is that weak place. If that's true, God's not very masculine, is he? If that's true, then that's a very sad existence as we stay holding our own pain with no way to let it go. So as Javon said, when Jesus was crowned with thorns, he then 
became the king over pain. That's his dominion. He's there with us as we're experiencing our own pain and the pain of others. That is the only thing that will get you through. That is the only thing that will keep you from checking out like I have been doing and that I am tempted to do. And when we're feeling overwhelmed and we feel that we've been bearing with others and our own strength, we need to remember Jesus. It's through the cross, it's through him bearing our pain that we can even come to this place to deal with our own, let alone take on the pain of others. So I'm going to close with the verse we opened up with, Romans 12, 15, again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Join me in prayer. Father, weighty words like this themselves can, can be opportunities and open doors that you've given us to move towards lament. To confess that maybe we have not been Christians that have been living like, like light in the darkness. To confess where we have not, we've not looked to you for our peace. And so we've not been able to be a peaceful presence in the panic of others. Confess where we have not dealt with our own blind spots, our own insecurities, our own weaknesses, but we have just avoided pain at all costs. God, give us your heart to love people, to draw near those that are hurting. So that like the examples that we saw on stage today, we can be seen as people that are safe to be broken with it. Our church can be viewed as a hospital for those that are hurting, as a, as, a, as a harbor in the storm. God, I desperately want to be known as someone who is like you, that can point people to you in their places of pain. God, through your spirit, allow us to be able to listen with the ears of the Father. God, allow us to be people that can absorb pain with the presence of Jesus. And God, allow us to be people who are able to speak life, to convict, and to give healing words through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit leads us in what we need to say, when we need to say it. In your name, amen.